Almighty God, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you that when we run this race, we don't have to rely solely on our own wit, strength, courage, endurance, uh, that you run with us. In fact, when it feels we can't run, you carry us through the race. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Forgive us for the times we take you lightly, dismissively. We don't give you the space and the time that you deserve in our life. Confess this and other sins to you now at this time of communion. We ask for your forgiveness, for your grace, your blessing, and your mercy in the days to come. Praise in Jesus' name. A few years ago, a popular song asked us this question. The, the song asked us, tell me all your thoughts on God. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, there's a passage in the Bible where the Apostle Paul actually has an opportunity to explain God, faith, Jesus to some people who really don't know anything about God at all. It's a very fascinating uh, conversation that Paul has when he's talking with the people on Mars Hill in Athens. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. And I want to get a sense of who God is this morning on this post-Thanksgiving weekend. And by the way, let me just say, if, I had, if it was in my ability to give all of you an actual golden star, I would give you one today because if ever there was a day to sleep in, man, wasn't it this morning? You were exhausted from your week of revelry. Uh, you got up this morning and it's raining outside. If ever there was a day to sleep in, yeah, some of you online, you know what I'm talking about today. Uh, you, you had this chance. and you thought, I'm just going to stay at home. But you came today, and I'm so thankful for your presence here uh, today. Uh, it makes a big difference, and we're glad that you're here. So Paul is, um, is on his first missionary journey. And he's going out and he's talking to people about Christ. His pattern is typically to go and to talk in the synagogues first. And, and then if, if that's not met with a good reception, he goes on then just to, to preach wherever he can. In this particular uh, part of the journey of Paul in Acts 17, uh, he's waiting for some of the other uh, followers of Jesus to join him on his missionary effort. And he's in the place of Athens, Greece. And so it says that while he was there, in verse 16 of chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It's been said that it would be easier to find uh, a person in the city of Greece than it was to find an idol, that idols outnumbered the people there. Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, that being the case, although we know today from archaeology, when you look at ancient Greece, right, statues and idols everywhere. Uh, it was a big part of who they were uh, in Athens, and Paul will tell us more about that in a minute. So Paul reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, the Epicureans were believers in a great divine. There was a deity uh, that was out there, a singular deity, but not one that was connected to us in life. 
one that was far off and distant. But there was one. That's what they believed. And um, that's the belief of the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics were much more what we would call pantheistic or pluralistic. They saw the idea that there were many, many gods, and they embraced them all. That's who he was debating with. Because he was advocating something different from both of those beliefs. So he was in debate with them, and as he's discussing things with them, uh, some of them ask this question. What is this babbler trying to say? It's nice to know that preachers are looked at so fondly as calling them babblers. I'm not going to ask if any of you have ever said, boy, this preacher just keeps babbling on and on and on. What's he babbling about? Others were there and they remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, they said. Now they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus the resurrection. So then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which was a, a group where all of these philosophers gathered together to meet. And they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Now Luke, who is writing the Gospel of Acts for us, pins a, a, a note here for us to understand what's happening. And Luke says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, that is in Athens, Greece, spent their time doing nothing. <laughs> well, doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they weren't really into working, they just liked to talk a lot about what was going on in the world and in faith and and Paul happened to be there. He engaged them in the arena of ideas. So then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You know, he could have started this all kinds of ways. But he chose a positive a tone here, didn't he? He said, I know that you're religious people. He kind of found some, some common ground. You're religious people, and, and I'm a religious person. Uh, this is an idea that still works even today. He started on their, what they had in common, not what was different. I see you're very religious. For as I walked around, and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. You know, for a man that was in Judaism, who had such a negative connotation of idols... He could have said all kinds of horrible things about them. Go back and read the Old Testament. Read what the prophets said about idols. But he didn't. Again, there's a compassion in his terms. He's seeking honest conversation, and he's not being disrespectful. So he says, I see you have objects of worship. So he so far is building an opportunity, a bridge for conversation. And as he does so... Uh, he says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The NIV translation is probably a little harsh, but the point was, he was saying to them, look, there are things that you even say up front, we don't know. There are things that are unknown to us. So the God that's unknown to us, he says, 
Let me tell you about the thing that you don't know. And for people who all they want to do is sit around and learn and know more things, this was, this was great. This was great. So it is that Paul sets out to tell them all kinds of things about God. Now at this point in the service, we have to pause for audience participation. I know you were looking forward to this. It's a holiday, and so it's one of those days we get to do something we don't do very often. If you hear me preach, you know I don't, Zach, he loves to get you involved, not me so much. I like you to sit, and, no, that's not really true either. But anyway, I'm going to engage you today in the sermon. Here's what you need to do just for a second. This was, of course, Thanksgiving holiday, and so I need for you to do the, this thing together in just a, a second. You're going to tell uh, at least two other people, one who you may know well and one who you don't know as well, uh, you're going to tell them what you're thankful for this Thanksgiving, and you're going to say it with this phrase, I thank God for, and you finish it, okay? I'm not throwing out any hints, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you have a couple minutes to do this with the people around you, stand up, and find some folks around you, and say, I thank God for, and then listen to what they have to say back. Good luck. Fifteen seconds. You're a chatty bunch this holiday season, I can tell. I, I did start it. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. All right, you just joined Paul in the work of proclaiming things about God. And that's what Paul does here at Athens. He gets involved in the work of proclamation, telling people about who God is, what God does, and why God is a God to be worshipped and praised. I think you'll be encouraged by these things that he says. There are four or five descriptors that he gives about God, and I want us to focus on them for a moment and to give God thanks for these things that he does. Because God is unique in all the world, all the universe, all creation. There is no God like our God, Amen. And so the things that Paul describes set God, the real true God, apart from all other ideas, all other idols, all other beliefs that were held by the Athenians and by others even today. So let's take a look at what he says. So he stood up, he told them, listen, I'm going to tell you what you don't know. 
And he starts by telling us this about God, that God is a maker. God is a creator. Listen to the words. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Immediately, he says, listen, God is the creator of everything. Nothing exists without God. And God is bigger than the idols that you see. God is bigger than the temples that you've built. And they had built enormous temples. Some of those temples are still modern. They're they're part of the, the wonders of the world, they're called, right? They're still incredible today. And the Athenians took great pride in how much they loved their gods. And Paul, right away, when he talks about God as the maker and the creator, he's saying to them, God is bigger. He's bigger than what you imagine. He can't be contained in a vessel of stone that's carved or a vessel of wood. God is bigger than all of that. In fact, you have created all those wood and stone things, but I want you to know that the God that he's speaking about, he is the creator of all things of the heavens and of the earth, that God is a maker. He is a a creator. And and just understand this. Paul didn't say these words, but for us, as we think about how God makes things, understand. Well, the psalmist understood. God made you. The psalmist describes our birth and our, our conception as being knit together by God in the womb, that God has a hand in the process of forming us. God has made a way for us to live on this planet. Think about this. God put the earth in exactly the right spot from the sun. 5% closer to the sun, and the temperature here would be 900 degrees. Very inhospitable. 5% farther from the sun, and we would be a giant ball of ice, kind of like Mars. But he put us in exactly the right place to live, to be. He's a creator who created the world in a powerful and special way. It sets things apart. And if God could do that for the universe and for our world, hear this, he can also make a way for you, even when it seems there's no way. He can also make a way for you in your life, and he wants to. Because God is a maker. He is a creator. And Paul starts his his conversation about God, his thoughts on God, by saying God is the maker of of everything. He's bigger than you think. If you're facing a hard time right now, that should encourage you. God's bigger than the challenge that you face. He's big enough to handle it. He can make a way. God is a maker. Not only is God a maker, but Paul goes on and he wants us to know that God is a giver. Listen to what he says in the next verse. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives. He gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is a giver. It's an interesting concept about God that, that it's important in a couple ways, right? We said that some of those, those Epicureans that were there listening to this message that he's speaking to, they thought God was distant, disconnected. Paul says, no, God is the one who gives you every breath. 
He's one who gives you life. He gives you the things you need. He's, he's very much a giving God who provides just what you need. God gives. Now, Paul, of course, is going to, in a few minutes, lead us towards Christ. He started his conversation by telling them what? Telling them about the gospel, the good news of the resurrection that God gave. We all memorize that verse, for God's love only gave his only son. This was central to the message of the uh, apostles. It's central to the message of Paul. And Paul here wants them to understand God is a giving God, not a taking God necessarily, but a giving God. It's not that God doesn't take anything. He receives from us gifts, but, but God also gives abundantly more than he receives. Now he goes on and he says this, that God is not just a maker and he is not just a giver. God is a planner. Now I hesitate to say this next part because I am notoriously bad about flying by the seat of my pants, but some of you in this room, Betsy, Virgil, you are planners, and you love to know what's coming next and have it all mapped out, and I hesitate to say this because it's very clear from the text that God is a planner, and he marks, amen, did you say that, Virgil? Of course you did, of course you did. God's a planner, he, he marks, literally marks things out. I'm not a calendar person, but some of you who love to live by your calendar, God keeps a calendar. Listen to what Paul says next about God. He's describing God to them. He says God's the creator. He's the maker of all things. God is the giver of life. He gives all kinds of things. And then he says God is a marker. He's a, he's a planner. He marks things out. Listen to what it says here in verse 26. It says, uh, it says from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. I mean, do you picture God here with his, his highlighter and his pen marking off boundaries, marking off dates, putting everything down in an in, in organized fashion? Absolutely. Paul describes God in this way. And this is important Again, he's arguing with these philosophers, and some of them have argued that God has no hand in the affairs of men, that God has nothing to do. He, he's a disconnected God, and Paul is arguing that very strategically here. No, God gives every group of people a time, an opportunity. God's given you and I a time an opportunity. Now, we don't know how much time we have. We're told make the most of the time that we have. We're challenged that days can be evil things, not just good things, and we should make the most of the time that we have because we don't know how much more time we have. This was poignant, this Thanksgiving at my family, and I probably think it was for some of you. It was a holiday, the first holiday, where someone that you loved wasn't there. That's a hard thing. I suspect many families in the church had that happen this year where you gathered and and you remembered someone who has passed, and maybe you had the joy that we also had of, of celebrating new arrivals into your family. It's hard. Loss is hard. When we think about this idea that God is the maker of all things, that he has plans, and that he has expected us to make the most of our time, Events like this weekend remind us that time really is sometimes frail and short, and we should take Paul's words seriously. We should make the most of the time that we have. 
say the things we want to say, encourage the way we want to encourage, give a hug when we have a chance to give a hug, make a difference while we can make a difference. Well, he goes on then and he says something that's of great comfort to me as I finish thinking about that topic of sadness at the holiday. The next thing that he says is that not only is God a maker, not only is God a giver, not only is God a planner, but God is near. He is absolutely not far off. Listen to verse 27. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is near to us. I don't know if that encourages you or scares you. If you're living the right way, that's a great encouragement to you. If you're off the path right now, it might concern you a little bit that God's right there seeing everything that happens, hearing every word, capturing every thought. God is much nearer than you think. This was Paul's message to the people of Athens. You're seeking after all these other gods, but the one true God is a lot closer to you than you think. He's here. God is near. He's not as far, as way, far away as, as people think. He's not as far away as Satan would like you to think. God is near. Paul's not finished talking about God, and he says in verse 28 this great thing that God is not only a maker and a giver and a planner, that God is not only near but that God is life itself. Listen to what it says in the next verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live. If you don't get anything else out of this passage today, capture those four words. If you want to live, truly live an abundant life, it can only happen in God, in Christ. In him we truly live. Apart from him, we can do nothing. God is life, Paul said. And then I, I like where he goes as he moves forward now, these last verses. He's, he reminds them, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this man to everyone by raising him from the dead. God will finish what he started God is a finisher. The world has a final day, and there is a judgment day to come. That is not fun to think about, judgment day. As a grandfather, I have really, so far, not had many occasions that I've ever had to discipline my grandchildren. Oh, there have been a couple times of get off of your brother, you're going to hurt him, those kinds of things. But but, but nothing too, too dramatic until Thanksgiving Day. 
Now, I have now five grandchildren. One is a baby that can't move around yet, just tiny little river. But, of course, we have Henry, who was our miracle baby. God gave him his heart back and all those things that have happened in his life that are incredible. And the older one, my oldest granddaughter, Nora, had helped get Henry on my bed. Had Then Charlotte and Atticus had gotten the bed, and all four of them had managed to take the comforter off my bed every pillow off my bed, the main sheet off the bed, and they were trying to take the next sheet off the bed when I walked in and saw disaster all over my room. And I, I, for the first time ever, thought, what in the world? What possessed you to play this game? And they start to yell out, faster, faster, Grandpa's here. (laughs) And so Grandpa had to put the kibosh on the destruction of my room. And I said, come on now. I said, that's enough. Everybody off grandpa's bed. Everybody head back out in the other room. And they, my oldest granddaughter, God bless her, God love her, and God help her, she started saying, we don't got no freedom. We don't got no freedom. And the littles joined right in with her. We don't got, I'm like, what in the world is with these kids? Like they watch Norma Ray on the weekends or something? We don't got to fight the power, fight the man, fight grandpa. He took away our freedom to destroy his bedroom. Oh, my goodness. Now, I don't have any clue of the context, and I don't want to make too much of it, but they got in their other room, and someone said, well, they learned that at school, and I thought, what? <laughs> you learn at school, you have any freedom? I don't, want to, I don't even want to know. I won't even go there right now. That's a whole other topic. But anyway, <laughs> judgment's never fun, and it does feel like someone's impinged on our freedom. Paul comes back at the very end, though, and he says, listen. There's a God who he's already made the case. He sees us, he knows us, he's close to us, he's watching us, and he's going to ask us to account for things. And we might find ourselves wanting to push back, wanting to fight against that. But God doesn't, he doesn't put the image here of a God who wants us to fail or a God who wants us to not receive his good gift at the end. He paints it in the terms that God is God who finishes what he started for the world and he wants to finish what he started in you. Elsewhere, Paul will write these words that I think give light to his understanding of God as a finisher. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Paul says God's going to finish the good work he started in you. He hasn't given up on you. You're not done yet. He hasn't finished the project yet. I, I don't know if you noticed this, that sometimes when you tackle a project, things look a lot worse before they look better. Ever notice that? It can happen in house cleaning when you're doing a house cleaning project and you're, you're, you're moving things around the house and man, things get really bad before they get really good. Or if you're doing a house renovation, sorry Fred, you and I have talked this many times, right? The, the drywall dust is flying and your wife's not very happy and it's a mess and your, your tools are in the wrong spots and everyone's getting grumpy and, and then all of a sudden when it's finished and it's beautiful, you're like, wow, this is something. Listen. Life gets messy, and a lot of things happen 
along the way of God getting us where he wants us to be. And sometimes it doesn't look very good. Have faith in this. God's going to finish the work that he started. He's a finisher. He's going to finish the work he started through the church. He's going to finish the work he started through you and through me. And all the mess-ups and the messes along the way are a part of the process of refining us, of cleaning us up and making us into that beautiful bride, so to speak, that he described us as. He's accomplishing his will and his work in us. He'll finish what he started. And he does that, of course, through Jesus Christ. The one who raised from the dead, to prove all of this, Paul says this about God. The proof is what he did with Jesus. He did with Jesus what no other God here can claim. He raised Jesus from the dead. Now, there are three ways that people responded to Paul's message. Listen to the responses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. One way to respond is to say, well, he really is just a babbler. <laughs> Not going to listen to that guy. Others said, hmm, I need to hear more about this. Not going to make a decision or anything, but I, I need to hear a little bit more about what you're saying. And the third group, well, the third group has said, verse 34, some people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was a man named Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. <laughs> Tell me all your thoughts on God, and when Paul was finished, some laughed. Some wanted to hear more. And some believed. How will you respond today? If you have a decision to make for Jesus, I encourage you to make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation. Let's stand together.